Hi, this is the Reverend Jacob Smith, and I want to welcome you to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast. One of my predecessors here at Calvary Church, the Reverend Sam Shoemaker, said, to be a church in New York City is to be a church for the world. And indeed, if you have been blessed by the gospel and listening to this sermon podcast, we ask that you might consider making a one-time gift to the parish or consider becoming a pledging member. You can do so by going to calvarystgeorges.org backslash giving and you can make your gift there. We'd appreciate if you pledge because it really helps us get the real gospel out to the very ends of the earth. So thanks again for your support. Now here's the sermon. And a real warm welcome to you to Calvary uh, Church on this first Sunday of Advent. Um, this, uh, this first Sunday of the new liturgical year. Actually, so everything is a cappella, if you will, on a profound level to remind us of uh, that great scripture. Let everything that have breath praise the Lord. And we do that. And um, it's also, I learned this, this is next to Easter, the number one attended Sunday service in Sweden. And so anyway, just uh, just in case you're ever in jeopardy and they ask you that question. But uh, um as a liturgical nerd, though, it's one of my great joys during this season when greeted with someone saying happy holidays or even Merry Christmas to respond with and a happy Advent to you. And so um, that was supposed to be really funny. But anyway, um, the word Advent, though, comes from the Latin word Adventus, and it means coming or appearing, and it's a really, really big deal. And the church has used this season traditionally to reflect on um, a number of things, but I'm going to highlight three for you today. The first thing that we reflect on is uh, the remembrance of Jesus' first coming into the world, which was foretold by the prophets long before Jesus' incarnation. The second thing we reflect on is the fact that because he came once, as the prophets foretold, meek and mild, uh, he will come again in great power and might to judge the living and the dead. And then the third thing we reflect upon, and one of the powerful things, is the concept of time and the fact that as Christians, we live in these last days between our Lord's first appearing and his second coming. And so what do we do in the midst of time? Where are we at in the midst of time as we wait for his return? Advent kind of puts us out of step with the culture. It's Christmas already at CVS and everywhere in between. But, um, and, and also during this time of year, the, uh, culture ramps up. And we're all going to be sucked into it. No matter how hard you try not to, you are going to be sucked into the hustle and the bustle of the holiday season. And Advent counterculturally says, slow down, be reflective, and prepare for that unknown moment when our Lord says he will return like a thief in the night. I will only do that probably on Sundays, but, uh, you know, I hope that Calvary St. George's can be that place for you during this season. And Advent really is important. It really builds up the anticipation for Christmas and our coming of our Lord. But this is my first point. Advent is best summed up in that haunting yet comforting hymn we opened up with, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Because Advent reminds us that in these last days as a church, On a profound level, you and I are in a form of captivity. It may not be Assyria. It may not be Babylon. 
But you and I as Christians are foreigners in a strange land. And we are in captivity. The captivity of social media algorithms. The captivity of online consumerism. The captivity of syncretistic civil religions and shallow spirituality. Yet nonetheless, as we wait in captivity, as Christians, we are people of a tremendous promise that Emmanuel has come to you, O Israel. Our gospel reading takes place in the middle of what is called the Olivet Discourse. And this is St. Matthew, Saint Matthew's perspective of the same scene as depicted in St. Luke's Gospel from a couple of weeks ago. Jesus is answering two very heavy-duty questions posed by his disciples in light of his prophecy that the temple, the center of Jewish life, religion, and hope, is going to come down. He says, there will not be one stone that is not unturned. And indeed, this came true. This came true. You can read about it about it in Josephus' log of the Jewish wars. But so he says there's not going to be one stone that's not unturned, a.k.a. the temple is going to be destroyed. And the disciples ask him two important questions here. They say, when will this occur? And then what will be the sign of your return? Because the destruction of the Jewish temple in their theology would have meant the very end of the age. As a matter of fact, a lot of people thought that Jesus would be returning within a hundred years of his ascension. And here we are. But so they ask him these two questions. When's this going to happen? And what's going to be the sign of your return? And our reading deals specifically with the very end of time. And Jesus says something very powerful about his return. He says this, take a look. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is giving us a very, what I call, open system of understanding the end times. Not a closed system. See, a closed system would say God is coming back in about three weeks. A closed system would give you the end. An open system, an open understanding of the end, well, there's a lot of unknowns with that. There's a lot of ambiguity. So it's not going to sell a ton of books or a lot of movies. But this is what Jesus does. And this open understanding of the end times that Jesus can come back at any moment, well, that can be very, very frustrating, especially for us control-freak New Yorkers like myself. Because on a profound level, this open system of the understanding of the end says two things to you control-freaks out there. I'm speaking to me, but (laughs) none of you. But anyway, um, but this says this. It says, one, you're going to have to wait on God. And then two, you're going to have to trust God. Two activities which do not come naturally to the human race at all. First, the waiting part. I hate waiting. I hate waiting with the burning passion of 20 hot suns. The other day, Spectrum had me on hold for about 45 minutes, and I got so impatient that 20 minutes into the call, I was pacing around my apartment, and you'd think I was waiting for some sort of medical result. But uh, I was uh, getting really livid. But I was, after 20 minutes, I was completely invested in the phone call. 
because, like the end times, I knew not the hour when I would be connected with an actual operator. (laughs) But you see, if they would have told me, you'll be connected to an operator in 45 minutes, what would I have done? I would have put the phone on speaker, and I would have gone about my business and done other things. Everyone knows this. Employees know this. You never tell your employees when you're coming back. At least I don't tell the employees here at Calvary St. George's when I'm coming back. Keep it in suspense, you know, because I know what would happen. They'd start sleeping on the job, arriving late, leaving early, taking a few personal days off, because there's always next Wednesday. This is true in my married life. You know, my wife will go away back to Arizona to visit her family, and she'll say, I'm coming back next Thursday. That kitchen can wait till next Wednesday at about 1130, you know? This is the thing. I will put it off. And Jesus knows this. And I believe he keeps the end open here. He doesn't tell us when it's actually going to happen. Not so we would guess it. I mean, this is the problem with a lot of parts of the church. They want to use this decoder ring to figure it out. And that's a closed system. Jesus knows not the end, only the Father, because he wants an expectant church. This is why we start the church year off with the season of Advent, because it is in waiting for an unexpected moment that we actually keep watch. And remember that each and every day is to be lived as though Christ were to return now. And it's in living this way, with an open understanding of the end of time, that Jesus could come back at any minute, which enables us to not only face the days that are ahead, but face with courage and sing out into the darkness of the unknown, and face the despair and death of the world with hope and joy. We can actually sing out, O come, O come, Thou day spring from on high, and cheer us by the drawing nigh. That's St. Paul's point in Romans. We're closer than we were yesterday. But in that hope, disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadow put to flight. So that's the first reason that uh, Jesus keeps it open, to keep us expectant. That's the church he wants. However, there's another reason I believe Jesus leaves the end of time open. And this is also offensive to New Yorkers. Uh, Jesus knows our propensity to do, 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 do for God. You know, we all want to make a difference, and we do it at the last minute. I once saw a bumper sticker that said, Jesus is coming back, look busy. And uh, this is exactly what we'd all do if we knew when Jesus was coming back. We'd look busy. We'd look busy. Instead of trusting in what he's already done for us, we would stack up a few good extra works just in case James was right. No, I'm just kidding from last week's video announcement. But anyway, um, this is why you got to come every Sunday. But anyway, um, I know if I knew Jesus was coming back, I'd want to do like an amazing service for him to welcome him back, you know? I'd call Sarah and I'd be like, we need some extra acolytes. But that's exactly what would happen. Our soup kitchens would be all ready. Our prayer journals would be totally filled out. You know, we'd roll out our latest cause. This is one of the problems with modern-day liberal theology, is that it wants to build the kingdom of God and maybe invite Jesus to join us at the end. But we'd lay out all of our causes. You know, we'd take control. I'd have new vestments. 
and I'd be ready to greet Jesus in style. But we'd all be busy doing religion. And this is my second point. Jesus keeps the end of time open, not because he wants to keep us in the dark, or because he wants us to get the latest decoder ring and try and figure out when that moment is. Jesus keeps the end of the time open. No one knows but the Father. Because Jesus and the Father know us better than ourselves. And Jesus and the Father knows if we knew the hour, we'd be doing everything from procrastination on one side to attempting our best religious works trying to save the world on the other side instead of the one thing that is required, and that is to live by grace through faith, trusting in Jesus, and that he, by his work alone, has, is, and will make all things right. I recently read Viktor Frankl's amazing work, Man's Search for Meaning. And it's a powerful Advent book. I mean, it's not intended to be an Advent book, but it's a powerful Advent book. And Frankl, if you don't know, was a psychoanalyst. And from uh, and he would belong to what's called the Third Venetian School. And through his uh, experience as a Jew in Auschwitz, he developed this form of psychoanalysis called logos therapy. And the opening section of Man's Search for Meaning, Frankel describes his time in Auschwitz, and as we all know it, a hopeless, awful, horrible, dehumanizing experience. However, in the midst of this experience, Frankel learned something profound about human nature. And Frankel noticed in his book and in his studies that there was a difference among those who survived and those who didn't. And he also noticed that there was a difference among those who survived and those who survived and compromised their humanity by becoming Nazi capos. These were the Jews that wore the yellow stars. And Frankel describes them not because they're the enemies, but because they, it's just their nature. They, did, they were far more atrocious than a lot of the uh, guards in, in Auschwitz. But he says that the difference was a sense that in the midst of it all, there was actually meaning. This was the difference between those who survived and those who compromised their humanity and those who died, is that there was an understanding of meaning. His revelation came about when he overheard men speaking about when they finally got out of the camp, then their life would have meaning. And he said no to all of that. He said, what is the meaning right now? And Frankel observed in everything from the flea-ridden mattresses to the cold manual labor, he began to understand and see meaning in all of it. And he writes, what was really needed was a fundamental change in our attitude toward life. We had to learn ourselves, and furthermore, we had to teach the despairing men that it did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. This is my third point. Watching, waiting, these are all very passive acts. Yet this is only what's expected of us during this season of Advent. 
However, and indeed our Christian life, we watch and we wait. However, we watch and we wait not for a vague concept. Christianity's had the logotherapy for a long time, but this word is not within you. It's not about mustering the strength from within. This word is outside of you. And this word we watch and wait for is the Lord Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, who has come to you in crib and cross. Emmanuel, who now comes to you by water, word, and bread, and wine. And Emmanuel, who will come to you in great glory and make all things right. This is the word outside of you. This is what Advent is all about. Emmanuel, our Lord, who in his death and resurrection and ascension gives us meaning in these last days right now. And what does this mean about you right now? It means that you are a beloved child of God right where you're at. And so you can leave this place with meaning because you have been declared by a word outside of you that you are forgiven, that you are loved, and not some abstract bumper sticker, but sealed in the very blood of Jesus that you are a son and daughter of the Most High God. So what do you do when you leave this place? You be a husband. You be a wife. You be a banker. You be a lawyer. You be a grandmother. You be whatever your vocation is. You be a pledging member of Calvary St. George's. (laughs) But, But in light... In light of your justification, you are justified. Just do what is given you to do until he returns and calls you home. And your light indeed will shine before all people, and they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. For whatever you are doing, whether it be minuscule, whether you think it's profound, it has meaning. It has meaning because, and never forget this, you are baptized and you are clothed with Christ and covered with his perfection. It has meaning because in a moment you're going to come up and you're going to be nourished, nourished with his very body and blood, which strengthens you with his promises until he returns. And these signs of the new covenant, which are tangible, These signs convey to you that you, despite what you're feeling, you believe in Jesus and you've been forgiven by Jesus and your life has meaning until the end because you have his promise, which is, as said by St. Paul, he will sustain you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the promise to you. That's the promise of Advent. Until he returns, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.